0: All right. Let me review us on our announcements. I'll be—I le- appreciate prayer. I'll be leaving in the morning. This is always a rough week when it works out this way. I'll be leaving in the morning, and will be teaching tomorrow night, Thursday night, and Friday night at Tucson Bible Church in Tucson, Arizona, and um, that—that's where John Hintz is the pastor. And then Saturday morning, I will be getting up at o Dark Thirty. And flying to washington d c for the uh, annual APAC policy Conference, in light of the rise of anti on in the Democrat Party, it should be rather interesting it 's always it was more interesting when Obama was president, but it should be interesting so um, that 's going on. Um, John Williamson is going to continue to teach some things uh, from Jonah and Elbert uh, will be covering on Sunday morning. Uh, our annual church picnic, rain or shine, no, just shine, uh, will be April the 13th at Orlando Salas. We'll start putting out information and shine-up seats for that, for our annual uh, exercise in fantasy. Okay, uh, pray for Jeff Phipps and his... Uh, And Pastor Eliel, who was here at the conference, uh, they left for Brazil on the 15th, which was last Friday. They began teaching. Jeff said things had gone uh, really well. Uh, Eliel's lost his voice, so he's found it somewhere. He's getting better, but he's still sick, so please continue to pray for him. Jeff returns on the 25th, which I think is next Monday. Okay. Okay. We need to prepare ourselves for the study of the word, make sure we are walking by the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking in the light. These are all different metaphors for emphasizing being in fellowship, being and enjoying our fellowship with with God, walking with him in the light of his word. So we will um, give everyone a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord, and I pray that you are continuing daily to enjoy your relationship with the Lord and to push on to spiritual maturity. So uh, during silent prayers, opportunity to make sure that you are in right relationship through confession of sin. So we'll bow our heads together, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege to study your word, and we are just overwhelmed as we look at the what you have revealed, and the intricate interconnections in the Scriptures as one writer continues to expand on what has been revealed to an earlier writer and how everything intersects and interconnects, and that this cannot be something that was devised by uh, human beings on their own will, but is something that reflects and demonstrates the... um, inspiration that has been breathed out by you through the writers of scripture, that the origin is not in human minds or human thinking or human interpretation, but it is in uh, your mind, your eternal omniscience, omniscience, breathing out that which is a sufficient and complete revelation. Thank you for what we have and help us to understand and have our confidence renewed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, last week, which was the Chafer Conference for 2019, we had a speaker, uh, Pastor uh, Stephen Gurr. Steve did a great job, I thought, in going through the Messianic prophecies and really emphasizing that, golly, the Old Testament is Messianic. There are real prophecies there. And that this is demonstrated through numerous passages in in the New Testament that talk about uh, the prophecies in the Old testament jesus on the on the road to Emmaus, which probably was a two to three hour walk, that this was an opportunity for him to take those two disciples who didn't know who he was at the time, and he went through Moses and the prophets, just a basic summation term for the, for the Old Testament, for the, uh, for the Hebrew Scriptures, and took him through from Mo- Moses and the prophets from beginning to end to show all of the prophecies that related to him and that were fulfilled. Now, it took Steve three hours and three nights, so that gives us a pretty good idea, and he didn't hit all of them. So uh, that was a great overview, and I don't know about you, but even as much as I have studied this, he brought out one or two that I had not uh, truly considered or gone through, and so it's just so impressive when somebody does that all the way through hitting, hitting those high points. So that's what we've been looking at as we've been talking about the Davidic covenant, looking at the developments, the future references following the original uh, giving or cutting of the covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, 8 to 17, and the parallel in 1 Chronicles 17, 11 to 14. Now, one of the things you should realize is that the 2 Samuel 7 passage was written approximately the same time that the covenant was given within a few years. So that is a record of that. The first chronicles passage is sometime later. So let's just use a thousand as a general time for David. Uh, that's a thousand BC. We know that um, the exile occurs in five eighty-six. They come back from the exile in approximately five thirty-eight. Uh, B.C. and then they rebuild the temple, and after that they or during that time, the Chronicles is written as sort of a motivational speech to the nation. to It's a motivational kick in the pants to get moving. It goes along with uh, the last three, what we call minor prophets, because they're short, not because they're less in significance. Zechariah. Uh, uh, Haggai and uh, uh, Malachi, and these were written in order to get them motivated to finish building building the temple. But First and Second Chronicles is written to remind them of what God has done for David. And the house of David. That's the Davidic dynasty. First and Second Chronicles is parallel to First and Second Kings, but it doesn't talk about the Northern Kingdom. It just talks about the Southern Kingdom. It's to remind the people of the significance of God's covenant with David. So that really fits into what I've been doing is showing how the Davidic covenant is worked out in later, through the later prophets. But, but I'm not going to do an exposition of First and Second Chronicles and his argument there. I'm just going to state it like that. That that's its its primary purpose is to get them going. So we looked at the Davidic covenant. We looked at the provisions of the Davidic covenant. We talked about covenants as a significant. A framework in the Old Testament, that this is a contract between God and man. And these covenants are human covenants between uh, one man and another man. Abraham made a covenant with uh, Abimelech, the king of the uh, uh, Philistines, the ruler of the Philistines. And there's other covenants that are between rulers and between leaders. And we saw that it's a legally binding agreement or promise between two or more parties, especially for the performance of some action. I think that's really critical. It is always action-oriented. Somebody is promising to do something and to bring it to pass. And it is used, uh, it's not used in 2 Samuel 7, but it is used in Psalm 89.35, which is post-exilic. That, like first and second chronicles, is written after the exile as a reminder to the to the uh, those who have returned from the exile that god 's covenant with David is still in effect so that 's the background there and we looked at this chart that in the Old Testament you have promises that are made with reference to um, the Old, the Old Testament plan for of God for Israel, and these are fulfilled. They come to they are, in, they come to completion, and they are enacted fully in the future. So we have our dispensational timeline there. And early in the history of Israel, you have the Abrahamic covenant. That is the foundation for God's plan for Israel, the calling of Abraham and his purpose in being a blessing to all nations, and that God would bless the nations through his descendants, specifically Jesus. In the Hebrew, it's a collective noun, seed, that can refer to descendants, plural, or it can refer just to one descendant. We'll come back and look at that issue a little later. There are three elements to the Abrahamic covenant, as we've seen, land, seed, and blessing. The uh, land covenant or real estate covenant does, isn't fulfilled until Israel uh, takes control of all of the promised land, and that occurs at the beginning of the millennium. At the same time, this is when the Messiah will return and establish his kingdom. We believe the Messiah is Jesus. Now, this is something interesting that comes up. I've been reading a book called God's Country by Samuel Goldman. Uh, Goldman uh, teaches at George Washington University. This is a book on uh, the significance of Zionism in American history. And he does a pretty good job. He writes, though, from the framework of a, as he puts it and describes himself, a slightly observant Jew. Uh, he is not writing as a Christian, so his interpretation of some things Christian is, I think, a little bit slanted. But he does a good job overall, and he has some really good info information in this uh, uh, in his book. But he's he's emphasizing the fact that that um, that that Christians are motivated by the Abrahamic covenant and by bringing about. Uh, are, are preparing things for that time in the future when Israel will be restored to, uh, to the land. Uh, that is when Jesus returns as the Messianic king. That's what we believe as Christians. Jews will look at this and they will say, well, not so fast. That means you just want to convert us all. Well, yes and no. We get the idea that it is the Messiah who establishes his kingdom from about about 90% of that doctrine is developed from the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and, and the 12, the minor prophets. What we're doing because of New Testament revelation is we're plugging Jesus into the role of the Messiah because we believe it's pretty sure, certain that Jesus is the Messiah, And therefore, that is what brings about that that conclusion. But Jews Jews don't quite get the fact that that it's the Messiah. I wish more Christians, when they talked about it, would talk about the Old Testament prophecies, not starting off with Jesus is going to come back and establish the kingdom because you've assumed what you want to prove. Wait, just talk about establish the fact, get a point of agreement with the Jewish a receptor that the new, the Old Testament teaches that Israel has to turn to God. Then the Messiah comes. We looked at this last time in Hosea chapter three. Then the then they're going to turn to God, and then God will restore them to the land and give them the land. It's it's that. Uh, it 's the Messiah that comes after they turn to God that 's important once you establish that 's what the Old Testament teaches, then you get to the point where you can talk about, well, is Jesus the Messiah or not? But what happens with most Christians is they, they front load the whole thing with Jesus is the Messiah and and from a methodological viewpoint, if you were in a courtroom, basically you started off with your conclusion instead of developing your conclusion. So you have to do it that way, because most Jews are not mess- messianic in the sense that that they really are focused on a coming Messiah. That's sort of been written out, especially if Reformed Jews, they no longer believe that a Messiah is going to come, and uh, many of the conservative and the orthodox aren't quite so sure. More orthodox are than not. So you have... These three covenants in the Old Testament that expand on the land seed blessing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, and they are all brought into effect at the same time. That is, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, the kingdom is that kingdom that was promised to David. That's why the Davidic covenant becomes so important. And that's why I'm taking the time to go through these passages. And what I've discovered and what I hope you discover is that the Davidic covenant is talked about. And we're not talking about, I'm not going to talk about all the places it's alluded to because we'd be here until next November talking about the Davidic covenant. Uh, but I want to hit some of the important ones and some of the key ones and <clears throat> it, it, um, strengthens our faith, for one thing, but it helps us to see why this is, is so important. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant, I've said, has these three elements of land, seed, and blessing that are broken out into the subsequent three covenants, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant, each of which will be uh, enacted there's a lot of discussion how to, whether we're talking about inaugurated, enacted, fulfilled. It goes on, and I'm not going to get into discussing all those terms. It's when you say we're not the covenant's not here, and now the covenant is here. And that's going to happen at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And then the Davidic covenant also has three elements, that God promises David an eternal house. That's a dynasty and an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. Now, last week, Steve brought out the same thing. I always like it when guys come in, and we never talk about these things, and they say almost the same thing that I've been saying for the last 20 years. He said that to have an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne, somebody's got to be sitting on it that's eternal. That means he's divine. You don't have a human being that's eternal. Uh, eternal, so the D- the Davidic line is assumed by this this promise to culminate in a descendant who will be eternal, so that gives us that that um, divine element in the Davidic covenant, but it 's a descendant of David, and that means he 's human, fully human, so we have the God man which implicit within the Davidic covenant. Now, what I started two lessons back was, uh, we're going to pick up two vocabulary words. You've got one of them from Steve Gurr, and I've used the other one, but I want to make sure this is clear. The two terms that we're going to talk about in this study, one is diachronic, and the other is intertextual. Neither of these words were used in seminary when I was there 40 years ago. Now they're everywhere, so... um, I'm educating you so that you can understand these people. I am so gratified sometimes. And I appreciate when people send me emails and tell me things like this. I've had, oh, I don't know, a dozen, twenty people say, I really I realize after listening to these speakers how well you have taught us and trained us because I had no trouble understanding them and it really made a huge difference. So that's what it's all about is education. The word diachronic, dia, D-I-A, is the Greek preposition through, and chronic is from the Greek word chronos, which means time. So that basically means through time. So we're starting at 1,000 B.C., and we're going to work forward century by century Uh, as we go through the scriptures, going through time to see how the Davidic covenant is referred to afterward, subsequently. And the diachronic is a term that is used of word studies, is used of topical studies that follow this sort of chronological development. For example, you can see some words that are used by Moses in, in, in the Pentateuch, in Genesis, and then you look at how those words progress in their meaning in later books. You look at the uh, later, uh, the great major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they may use a word in a slightly different sense. I can think of a couple of words in the first part of Genesis, that one of which is used again in Song of Solomon. That's 400 years later. There are words in English 400 years ago. Let me see. 2019 minus 400 is 1619. What happened in 1611? King James James Version was translated. The Authorized Version. Charity is the topic of 1 Corinthians 13. Has charity changed its meaning? Has that word changed its meaning in the last 400 years? Certainly. Usage is what determines word meaning. And charity has now been replaced in more uh, up-to-date translations with what it should have been to begin with is love. It's agape. It's not charity in the sense that we use the word charity today. So diachronic will take words or topics and work them through from a chronological uh, perspective. And then the other word, and Steve used this, intertextual. The text, of course, is Scripture. We have the text in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, and then we have the New Testament. And intertextual looks at how something is used and is interwoven in later texts. Okay, so it's it's similar to what is going on, but you realize that there are just a word here, a word there, that are used in uh, major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, and it alludes to, just seeing that word, all of a sudden it brings, should bring to your mind the whole concept of um, of the Davidic covenant. <clears throat> One of these passages I've talked about is Psalm 89, the, <clears throat> the eternal nature of God's covenant with David. Uh, Psalm 89 is quoting, God, my covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. This is... It's not going to change. It's, it's set in stone, as it were. It is rock solid. I made this contract with David. It's unconditional. It's eternal. And it, it will not change. Once I have sworn by my holiness, there's a lot of debate as to what is it that begins a covenant What establishes a covenant? What's essential to cutting a covenant? And a lot of people will go to passages for the Abrahamic covenant. For example, in Genesis 15 where there's the sacrifices and God puts Abraham to sleep and he alone passes between the two halves of the sacrifices. And people will say, sacrifice, what begins the covenant? A lot of people come along and say, see, Jesus died. He said that was the new covenant of his blood. We're in the new covenant. Wrong. A lot of covenants don't have sacrifices. What initiates a covenant is an oath, an oath. That's what God says right here with the Davidic covenant, um, Psalm eighty-nine thirty-five. When did God? Sa- when was there a sacrifice in association with the Davidic covenant? First Samuel seven, no. First Chronicles, no. See, doesn't have to have a sacrifice. It's the sworn oath that is what establishes or what uh, uh, cuts the covenant. Okay, his seed shall endure forever. Now I want to put in a couple of passages here because the New Testament uh, connects the Messiah back to this this Davidic covenant. His seed shall endure forever. And his throne is the son before me. In other, and that's prophetic that a descendant of David will sit on a throne that is established forever. Now, the New Testament immediately, right off the bat, establishes that this is Jesus. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We've gone through that, of course, when we started with Matthew, but this is connecting the dots for the reader at the time uh, that Matthew wrote, Jewish reader. Jesus is a direct descendant of David, that's the Davidic covenant, and a direct descendant, therefore, of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. That's that's what you should hear when you read this, is that uh, covenant connection. Then in Luke 1 68 and 69, this is uh, Zechariah, the priest, John the Baptist's father. And he is praising God for what he is going to do through his son, uh, John the Baptist. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. See, he's connecting John's birth to redemption of his people. That takes us right to the Abrahamic covenant. He said he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. See, it's dynasty. And who's going to be the one who is from the house of his servant David? Well, Luke tells us in the next chapter, Luke 2 verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David. That's Bethlehem. Right away, we read David. You ought to be thinking Davidic covenant. Uh, to David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was what? Of the house and the lineage of David. House of David. There's new, uh, there's Davidic covenant language right there. Uh, verse 11, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So it is connecting Jesus and his birth, he is the Messiah, and he is of the house and the lineage of David. So that is central in understanding the um, uh, the birth narrative in Luke. Matthew 2.1, switching back to Matthew, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east, for the Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That is a loaded question. It is so Davidic because of the promise that there will be a Davidic uh, descendant on the throne. And when they show up, it's they're going to Herod, who was paranoid. The uh, Magi were uh, descend there were Medes in the um, in the Persian remember the Medes and the Persians coming out of Daniel the Medes had a tribe called magi they were a they studied they specialized in uh, mathematics and astronomy usually that 's described as astrology but they 're studying the stars. And so they are uh they they as a priestly caste, become elevated in the subsequent Parthian empire, and they become the the power brokers in the kingdom it's the magi who select and affirm and recognize the uh, uh, the king of of Parthia as you have. Uh, one king die, and the next ascends to the throne. He's validated by the Magi. So they're Parthian kingmakers. And early and the Parthians and the Romans were always fighting in, in the uh, last century B.C., in the 50 years or so before uh, Jesus was born. And one time they started to invade Judea, and Herod had to flee for his life. He stashed his family up on the uh, up in the fortress, up in Masada, and he hightailed it to Alexandria in Egypt to uh, to Cleopatra, and she got him a ship, and he went to Rome and came back with an army. He hated the Parthians, scared him to death, that he would be um, uh, deposed and and removed from the throne and killed by them. And so when these Parthian kingmakers showed up and knocked on the knocked on his door and said, "We want to know who the king, where the king of the Jews is," and it wasn't him. Um, well, you know, there are a lot of ways to describe that. One of them is hitting the panic button. So uh, then he's very sly. And he says, well, when you find him, come back and tell me. I want to come and worship him too. no. We know He wanted to kill it. So there we have at the beginning of the New Testament this identification of Jesus with the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promise. And at the end of the New Testament and all the way through in between, we have Jesus making the statement at the end of Revelation 22, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root. Now we're going to see that that term root comes out of Isaiah And it's related to the root of Jesse, the family of David. And the Messiah is portrayed as the branch. I am the root and the offspring. That's just another way of saying I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So all of this shows a fulfillment, a a clear understanding. The Messiah had to be Davidic. Jesus is Davidic. Jesus is the messianic Davidic king. Now, last time, what I did was I put this chart up here to give you a chronology of the prophets, the writing prophets, the major the latter major prophets and the and the minor prophets. You have the ninth century Joel and Obadiah more than likely there's some some conservatives will put them later, but they should probably go early, then. And I changed this to put Isaiah first because we're going to. Well, we talked about Hosea first, but Isaiah, Hosea, Micah, Amos, and Jonah doesn't have anything to say about the Messiah. Uh, then we move from the seven hundreds to the seventh century, and we have the um, we have uh, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Nahum, and Jeremiah. So we're going to look at a couple of prophecies in Jeremiah then we get in uh that's in the late 600s and then in the early 500s you have Ezekiel Ezekiel gets deported in the second invasion by by Nehemiah and he is taken back to uh back to babylon and uh then he becomes a prophet and he's at the same time as Daniel that's about the same time uh, Daniel and the other boys go back. They may have gone back at 605, but one of those exiles. Then you have uh, in the 5th century, after they come back from the exile, in the four hundred, you have the three, uh, the three prophets who were dealing with the post-exile issues, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now there's one thing I left off of this. Well, David wrote about the Davidic covenant and made allusions to it in some of his Psalms. And I just skipped past that because my enthusiasm to get to the uh uh Isaiah prophecy. So I want to stop, and, and probably today we won't get to back back into Isaiah, but I wanted to point some of these things out because they're they're very important. And these are some critical psalms. Okay? So in in Psalm 16. We don't know when David wrote this. All it says at the title in, um, the, in the superscript is a miktam, which is a form of poetry, uh, a miktam of David. And he says, I have set the Lord always before me. What that means is I'm always focused on God. I'm always thinking, how do I serve God? What does God want me to do? He, that's why he's called a man after God's own heart. I make my relationship with the Lord a priority in my life, because He is at my right hand, and He is saying here, because God is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. He's not going to be. He he's so, so, he knows that he's he's solid with being being the King of of, of Israel because of the Abrahamic Covenant. God is at a right hand. That's his position of strength and security. His conclusion then he states in verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and <clears throat> my glory rejoices. That's talking about his essence, all of who he is. He's, he's rejoicing. Uh, my glory is parallel to my heart. He's talking about who he is. He's, he's joyful. And he says, My flesh also will rest in hope. If we are going to take time to develop this, we would develop a connection between glad, rejoicing, and hope. Where do you find those words connected together in close proximity in the Psalms? I bet that would be a fascinating study. One day we might do that. And he says, for you, God... Now, David is speaking here, but this isn't really true of David. He says, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol. That could be simply the grave, but it's clearly he's died physically... You will not leave my soul and show, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, we know that he is being prophetic here. And at this point, he is looking, he is speaking about the Messiah. He becomes a type. Some event in his life is a type, and it, he's prophesying about the Messiah. And he says, You'll show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. Your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now this is important because these verses get picked up in uh, in acts in Acts chapter two with with Peter in acts uh, two twenty five to thirty one quotes psalm sixteen eight to eleven and here we read Peter on the day of Pentecost as part of his sermon where he is presenting the case that Jesus is the Messiah and that he rose from the dead. The resurrection is central in Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. And he goes to Acts, I mean, he goes to Psalm 16 as proof that the Messiah will be resurrected. And so he quotes, for David says concerning him, and then I put in italics, Uh, All the rest of what he says from 25 to 28 is a quote from uh, Psalm 16. And then he makes application in verse 29. He says, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, it's not the tomb of David that you see when you go to Israel now. That was that was done in, in the uh, Middle Ages. That is not, um, or maybe it was done in the intertestamental period, but it's not the tomb of David. Therefore, being a prophet, that's talking about David. David is a prophet. Now, he didn't have the office of prophet. He had the gift of prophecy. He is the king. So there's a distinction between the office of prophet who addresses the king and can challenge the king on the basis of their either failure or success in following the law. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, what is that referring to? I just talked about this. Swearing the oath is the establishment of the covenant swearing an oath to him that the fruit of his body, his physical descendant, therefore true humanity, according to the flesh, he repeats that, he puts that uh, appositional phrase in there to make sure we get the point of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the, and I would prefer to translate this, the Messiah rather than Christos, because you get the point if it's uh, more easily if it's translated the Messiah, he would raise up the Messiah to sit on his throne. That is the God's throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning of the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. It's messianic. Psalm 16 is messianic. If you go to Kiev... If you go to many places in, under Greek Orthodoxy or Russian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Church, and now they've made uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Church the official state church, they finally have separated that. It was a political ploy. The present president of Kiev is running for re election in April, and he thought this would get the religious vote, so he Formally recognize the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Ukrainian Patriarch is the head of the church in Ukraine. So that would get brownie points with the Orthodox in in uh, in in Ukraine. But if you go to these places, you'll go to places like I've been several times to a place called the Lavra Monastery. This is a uh, probably where Kiev was. Uh, founded, There were two brothers, Cyril and Basil, who came up from Greece. They're Orthodox missionaries, and they lived in these caves. And so they established a, a monastery there and a beachhead, and so the those who were leave, living in old Kievan Rus, uh, they eventually, the king decided they're going to be Christians, and so they marched everybody down to the Dnieper River. I hope it wasn't in the winter. Uh, And they baptized everybody. Every year when I'm there, in January, somewhere around the 12th or 13th, is Khrushinia. That's the Russian word for baptism. It's John the Baptist Day. It's the anniversary of when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. So people go down and they get baptized in the Dnieper. They cut a hole in the ice. I want you to feel it. But you know, people who have those convictions—we don't have those con- people who have those real strong convictions anymore. I want to be baptized, but I'll wait till the water warms up. When I was in in uh, Preston City. That church was founded by a group of people who came under Baptist convictions before that time. This was 1811. Before that time, there was a congregational church, so you got sprinkled as an infant. But then they came under Baptist convictions that you should be baptized by immersion in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit upon your uh, confession, upon your, your recognition and profession of faith, when you were old enough to believe in Jesus, and so there was a group of six or seven adults, and they decided that they were were needed to be baptized. It was February it was on Amos Lake, which is right across the street from where where I lived. They cut through eighteen twenty inches of ice. There was a man who just went to be with the Lord last year at the age of a hundred plus, and uh his wife's Was a wife was a direct ancestor of one of the women at that time, and she had sixteen petticoats. I've often wondered. I've had women that uh, that one time we would baptize in somebody's pool, and I had a woman who showed up in an ankle-length denim dress. I said, "Be modest." So she was. Trouble is, if you wearing a denim and you're walking down the stairs into a pool the denim floats so she's trying to you know push all the denim down and everything so once you got down everything's wet that was heavy i can't imagine what 16 petticoats would do trying to pull somebody up out of that icy water but anyway they had the strength of their convictions they got baptized in in really really icy icy water so um we have this this is not talking about I don't know how I got off into baptism, but baptism uh oh I was talking about Krishnya and uh, and the um and the uh, uh the Russian Orthodox. So you go into the lava there and you go down through the caves and there's all these little caskets they're about this big. Because when somebody dies, they would put him down in the caves and it would be naturally mummified. And then they would put him in, and people crawl up on top of it, kiss the caskets. I mean, it's legalism and mysticism are horrible taskmasters. But they believe that those priests are the ones who are holy and whose bodies did not see corruption because they did not decompose. Now that is not what Psalm 16 is talking about. Psalm 16 is not talking about holy priests whose bodies did not see corruption because they were somehow uh, mummified in the atmosphere of, of these caves. And you'll find that in different places in Eastern Orthodoxy. This is talking about the uniqueness of the resurrection and Jesus Christ in Psalm chapter 16 as is identified by Peter in Acts 2. Jesus' body did not go through uh, corruption because of the resurrection, and he gets a resurrection body. Later on in Acts, in Acts 13.33, we read, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's an important line. When does God say, When does this happen? Today I have begotten you in a a new sin. Because he's already announced several times that he is the father of Jesus. This is my beloved son at the time of the baptism by John the Baptist. So Psalm 2 is used there in Acts 13.33 and Acts 13.34. He quotes from Isaiah 65.3, which again alludes to the Davidic covenant, that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. That's Acts 16. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. That connects it to the Davidic covenant. And then in the next verse, in verse 35, he says, therefore he also says in another Psalm, this is a quote from Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But when he whom God raised up saw no corruption. So Acts 13 is all about the, the resurrection, connecting it to the Davidic covenant. Another passage that is important in the intertextual nature of the Davidic covenant. Very important passage, critical passage is Psalm 2. Psalm 2 has some difficult passages in it. I'm not going to go through an exegesis of Psalm 2. I just wanted to point this out. It begins looking forward to a time when the kings of the earth are going to rebel against God. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? I think this is looking forward to what is happening at Armageddon, just before the king comes. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The fulfillment, I believe, is in the future. But it's applied in Acts 4 by Peter. Acts 4 is when he has been... He and John were arrested by the Sanhedrin. They're thrown in jail. Then they're released. And he comes back and he is with the disciples and he's praying. And in that prayer, he says in verse 25, who by the mouth of your servant, David has said, why did the nation's rage and the people plot vain things? Now, What's happening here is Peter is using Acts 2 to formulate his line of argument in this prayer to God. I'm not going to go into that. I just want to point out this connection. So Psalm 2, which is about the messianic king and his future rule, which is Davidic covenant language, is quoted here in Acts 4.25. Uh, Acts 4.26, the kings of the earth took their stand, And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. And then he makes an application. He says, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together against Jesus. So he's just making application. He's not saying this was fulfilled. Then later in Psalm 2, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. We know who the king is because of the Davidic covenant. It doesn't come right out and hit you over the head with it. But if you know the Davidic covenant, you know that has to be the background of what he's saying here. And God is saying, I'm setting my king. This is looking forward to a time in the future when he sets his king on Zion to rule in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant to rule over Israel. And then in verse 7, he, uh, God says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, okay, I will declare the decree. This is the king speaking. The Lord, that is God the Father, Yahweh, has said to me, You, the king, are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, this is applied to the resurrection as a recognition that he is the king, he's raised, he's given new life. We know that by following how it's used and quoted in the New Testament. John's going to talk about this, so I'm not going to go through all the details. But I just want to point this out. In Acts 13.33, Paul says, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul is applying that to what happens at the resurrection. And then in Romans 1, 4, this is how we know that, he says, and he's declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So that is uh, pinpointing this at the time of the resurrection. Now I want to go back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, he declares, you are my son. That means that the Davidic king is the son of God. So when we read that title, son of God, and we get into the New Testament, guess what that all goes back to? It goes back to Psalm 2, and it it is also an allusion to the Davidic covenant because the son of God is the son of David. So we have uh, Acts 13.33, he raised up Jesus, said, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And Romans 1.4, he's declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. Now, he was already the son of God, and everybody knew, all through John, he's the son of God, all the way from John chapter 1, he is the son of God. Uh, In Mark 14.61, as he is being... uh, interrogated and tortured, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? See, they understood from these prophecies in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be the son of God. They used the term the blessed as a circumlocution to avoid saying the name God. But that's what he's saying. Um, Are you the Messiah, the son of God? John one thirty four. John the Baptist said, "And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God." So, from the time of of the John the Baptist baptizing of Jesus, it is clear that they are saying he's the Son of God. Son of God always goes back to that, uh, to to Psalm two two seven, Acts nine nine twenty. Immediately. This is Paul right after he's saved. Immediately he proclaimed to Christ the Messiah in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. So again and again you have this interconnection between the Davidic covenant that the king is going to come from David and that the king is the Son of God. He is fully God and fully man. This is what will develop out of... uh, what we've looked at in Second Samuel twenty three five, as David says that he is a prophesying in the Psalms about about the Messiah, and uses the term, uh, "Will he not make it increase?" That is to cause it to branch, using the word, samach, which means to grow, to sprout, or to branch. And the noun is, "semach," uh, is branch or sprout. And Jesus is going to be The branch. Now we'll get. We already looked at this as it's played out in Isaiah, in uh, Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah uh, four two in Jeremiah twenty three five through six. He's called the branch of David, in Zechariah three eight. My servant, the branch, and then in Zechariah six twelve, the man whose name is the branch. So. We will look at that. I'm going to go through each of those passages. I'm not going to go through everything that you could possibly go through, but I'm going to go through those. And we did start, when I started this, before I got, I had to back up a little bit, and we looked at Hosea and we looked at Amos. Uh, We looked at Isaiah 4-2, talking about the branch of the Lord. That's Messianic. Um, I got this from, stole this from Steve Gurr last week. This is great. The Amidah is a central prayer in Judaism. And anytime you go to uh, a service, I was at a service in November following the shooting that occurred in the synagogue in Pittsburgh. They had a, a memorial service uh, at at Matthew Shurn. It was just I mean, packed. Uh, probably 1,500 people in that auditorium. By the way, if you don't know it, Matthew Shurn is a con- is a conservative Jewish synagogue. It is the largest conservative Jewish synagogue in the country, so that that's that's very significant over there. Uh, but they they recited the Amidah, and in the Amidah, in the fifteenth benediction, it says, "Speedily cause the branch of your servant David to flourish." See, they're still saying this. Uh, they don't uh, a they probably don't understand what that means. They don't necessarily identify that with the with the Messiah. But they say that. Uh, Speedily cause the branch of your servant to flourish, exalt his horn by your salvation, because we hope for your salvation all the day. Blessed are you, O Lord, who causes the horn of salvation to flourish. Can you pray that? Can you pray that? Yes, we can. I've gone through the prayer book, uh, and there are a lot of prayers in the Jewish prayer book that we can pray because we understand who they're talking about. And they're mostly, all the phrases, all the language here comes right out. They've just rearranged them, but they come right out of the prophets. It's remarkable. So anyway, last time we looked at Hosea 3, 4, and 5, and this really struck me. Um, Just looking at verse 5. Afterward, after all this, the, the Jews are scattered, many days without a king or priest, afterward... What happens first of all? The children of Israel shall return. Shuv, they turn back to God. They have turned to idols and to false religions. Now they're going to turn back and seek the Lord their God, and David their king. And then there's the full restoration. So that's the order order of events. There we looked at Deuteronomy 30, using shuv here, and De- you return to the Lord. So that's that order order of events. It was interesting in reading the Samuel Goldman book on, um, on uh, I don't know, the title of God's Country. Uh, incidentally, he's giving a breakout session at APAC next Sunday afternoon, which I'm really looking forward to. And he points out that among Protestants, there's this huge missionary endeavor because up until the early 1800s, Protestants basically thought that the Jews had to all convert and accept Jesus as Messiah before God would restore them to the land. And then they began to realize, hmm, no, uh, there's, there can be a different order. They can all return to the land and then become converted. It's interesting that about the same time in the Jewish community, there's a shift away from the Orthodox view that the Jews could not return to the land until Messiah came. And then they began to realize, wait a minute, we can return to the land. We don't have to wait for Messiah. He can come after we've returned to the land. Now, they weren't consulting each other. It's just, I think, fascinating in the sovereign plan of God that Christians on the one hand and Jews on the other hand, without any knowledge of what's going on in the other camp, both decide, hmm, The Jews can go back to the land without conversion on the Christian side or without the Messiah coming. And so what we've seen as a result of that was the increased uh, return to the land through the 19th century and then all the major aliyahs and everything leading to the founding of the state of Israel – in 1948 we also looked at Amos 9:11 and i pointed out that this term tabernacle of david it's a sukkot, it's a, it's a lean-to the lean-to of david the booth of david is how it's translated but it's basically a lean-to that's because it's fallen down and that's because uh, at this he, amos is looking ahead to the time when The house of David is no longer ruling. We'll see some other things. I want to remind you that that's going to pop up some more. And then he talks about it'll repair its damages. I went through the Hebrew here. Uh, The first repairing its damages—that's reuniting the two kingdoms. I'll raise up its ruins. That's the it there is a third masculine singular that refers to the to David to the ruins of the house of David. Uh, so he'll rebuild with the second David and rebuild it. That is the third person, feminine singular, refers to the house of David, as in the days of old. And verse twelve says that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And I connected that back to Numbers twenty-four seven. And when I did that, I went through, summarized this prophecy a little bit, and and I only on the, this slide I only had twenty-four seventeen which mentions uh, battering the brow, the future judgment on Moab, Moab or Moab. And I didn't put 18 in there, but 18 is where the action is because that's mentioned Edom. So see, see that's that intertextual connection between Amos 9.12, they may possess the remnant of Edom, and that is what is said in Numbers 24.18, uh, and Edom shall be a possession so that connects those dots. This is a fulfillment of the messianic prophecy in in um, uh, balaam 's third oracle. So all of these things fit together. Uh, we then looked at how Amos was used in Acts fifteen to show that there's going when the uh, they rebuild the tabernacle of david there 's going to be Gentiles who are called by my name. And so the early apostles recognized that Gentiles were very much a part of the plan of God. Now, that brings us to the next significant prophecy, which is Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name God with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. So that is uh, foundational. This is the next major uh, prophecy in Isaiah. And this whole section, Isaiah 7, 8, 9, is usually referred to as the Emmanuel prophecy, the Emmanuel section, because that name ties it together, Isaiah 7, 14, and Isaiah 9, 6, and the whole section uh, goes together. And this is quoted as being fulfilled in Matthew. Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, uh, which is translated God with us. Now, if you notice in the translation in the New King James in Isaiah 7.14, it translates it as the virgin. Also in Matthew 1.23, the Greek has Parthenos, which is what you have in the Septuagint. So the rabbis who translated Isaiah in approximately 250 BC understood that this passage was talking about a virgin. However, we get into a real problem because in modern uh, Judaism, starting in about the 10th or 11th century, they said, oh, wait, 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 we're not going to really translate this virgin because that sounds like the Christians are right. So they began to translate as just a young woman, which is technically correct, but the word that is used there, and I'll go into a little more detail on this next time, the word that is used there is alma, only refers to a young woman. It's never applied to an older woman, only a very young woman who is of marriageable age. And, of course, under the Mosaic Law, if you were a young woman and of marriageable age, but you were not a virgin then you would be under the death penalty under the mosaic law so you'd be dead so it is assumed that a young woman who is of marriageable age is a virgin and we'll see a couple of passages that that support that but you know this is what the rabbis came up with is that this is a uh, does not necessarily mean virgin and so this is all all wrong However, the rabbis in 250 B.C. certainly understood that it referred to a virgin. And so what we see here is that this is a sign, which means it's not an everyday event. It is something highly unusual, if not improbable or impossible, that actually happens to get everybody's attention that God is doing something. And so what we'll do next time is come back and deal with this because this is all related to the house of David. This sign is for the house of David that God is not through with the house of David. And Ahaz, who's the king, is in a position where the king in the north and the king in Syria are going to... uh, go into an agreement with each other and attack him to take him off the throne and replace him with somebody else. And that's a direct assault on the uh, house of David. So Isaiah 7.14 is a very important section dealing with God's provision for the house of David, which ultimately is going to be through this sign, uh, the birth of of Emmanuel through the, the virgin. So when I get back... It won't be next week, but the week after, then we will get into uh, this great, great prophecy. I love going through this. I mean, Isaiah, one day I'm going to teach Isaiah. I've been studying it off and on. It is a monster book, okay? Biggest book in the Bible. You think Romans is hard. You think we're going to be in Ephesians for a while? Woo! Woo! No, I'm, you don't teach Isaiah like you teach some of these other books, and you wouldn't go through everything. You just hit some of the high points, but uh, I pray the Lord will leave me alive long enough to cover that. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to look at these prophecies, look at how uh, intricate and interwoven these these statements are, how your promise to David runs through the rest of the Old Testament and how it culminates in Jesus, the greater son of David. Help us to uh, see these things, to remember them, to be able to use this information times when we witness that we may clearly present the uniqueness of Jesus as the one who has fulfilled all these prophecies and therefore must be the descendant of David and the promised Messiah.